listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the philosophy, technology, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Samir Chopra to talk about what is, hands down, one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes, Be Right Back, which is the first episode of season two, which premiered in 2013. Samir Chopra is professor of philosophy at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. His academic interests include pragmatism, Nietzsche, the philosophical foundations of artificial intelligence, philosophy of law, and the politics and ethics of technology. Samir is a certified philosophical counselor and writes online at samirchopra.com. I am super excited about our conversation today because although Samir and I were co-authors on a group-authored philosophy blog, New Apps, the acronym stood for Art, Politics, Philosophy, and Science, We've never actually spoken in person before, so I feel like an old geezer saying this, but in its day, New Apps was an amazing space, and I miss it a lot, in no small part because it allowed me to meet people like Samir. At any rate, I'm so glad to have him here today to talk about Be Right Back. I'm a big fan of his blog, and I learned everything of the very little bit I know about cricket from his former Twitter feed. So welcome, Samir. Thanks very much for having me on, Lee. I've been following this podcast for a while, and I'm really glad you have me on as a guest. As you know, I ask every guest at the beginning of an episode to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to talk about. So could you summarize Be Right Back? Yeah, I would say Be Right Back is a quite a powerful and emotionally affecting episode in Black Mirror, which you know follows the fortunes and the trials and travels of a young couple, Martha and Ash, who are... I would say very much in love and they have a kind of a affectionate, playful sort of relationship with each other. We see a romantic relationship with the right amount of, you know, affection, impatience, um, quite a humanist take on the flaws and weaknesses that each character has. And this couple are immediately struck by a tragedy because they moved into a new house and Ash is killed in a road accident. And Martha suffers the worst nightmare that any family member or any person can have. Uh, she receives news shocking news of his his death and as the episode progresses what we come to know you know as this grieving process takes place that martha becomes seduced by the idea uh, of finding some kind of replacement substitute for ash's presence and that presence is one that is constructed virtually by the fact that ash like us has a huge electronic imprint on the net. And by using traces of that imprint, this kind of virtual recreation of Ash is made available to, to Martha. And in many scenes, which are actually quite reminiscent of the movie Her, she enjoys a kind of an interesting, sparkling kind of conversation with the old Ash, who is a kind of conglomerate of his older presence on social media. And then what we come to see is that as the episode progresses, that this relationship takes on more problematic notes and dimensions. It, I would say, 
uh, either, you know, depending on your perspective, reaches new heights or new depths as Ash goes from being a kind of a virtual electronic presence to having an Android presence in Martha's life. And then we see the challenges of Martha trying to negotiate that Android presence in her life. And as you might guess, with Black Mirror, these things don't really end all that well, or there is a kind of a darker side to these interactions with Ash. And the episode closes on a rather poignant note about, one might say, the ambiguous and ambivalent place that the android Ash occupies in Martha's life. That That's my rough take, and I think I, I hope those that brief skeleton has provided some idea of the various philosophical, I think, delicacies that this episode throws up. Yeah, no, that's a really good, succinct summary. Maybe one thing I'll say, well, two things I'll say. One is that it is important to remember that Martha gets introduced to this new technology in stages. So Uh her first introduction to it is Ash as a sort of text chatbot. And then secondly, as a voice enabled chatbot. And only thirdly, as a fully embodied Android. That's right. Uh, And maybe the second thing I'll say, and this is only because I teach this in my class a lot, and this is a kind of shorthand that I use in my class. In my classes, I ask my students when we talk about this to talk about Ash before his death and Ash after his death as Ash 1 and Ash 2. That's a little bit of a manipulative framing on my part because I don't want to say human Ash and robot Ash. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But... But for the for our purposes today, Samir, we can say Ash One and Ash Two, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Okay. Ash One and Ash Two. So, Samir, I'm gonna start with the hardest question: Are Ash One and Ash Two the same person? Uh, no, they're not. I would say they're not, and it's not just because they're different entities in terms of their physical composition. I think, as Martha herself starts to complain about Ash, and I think that's the right word to use, is that she notices that he is not the right person in a very interesting way, because Ash too is a blend. He is a kind of a hybrid of everything that Ash has put out there into these public spaces. Because remember, Ash the Android is based on his public persona. But of course, the public persona is just one part of us. It's part of this presentation that we do in public to let others know what kind of person we would like them to think we are. But Ash One has many dimensions to his relationship with Martha that are not put out into public social spaces. So at best, Ash Two can only be a partial capturing of Ash One. And of course, a very important and significant part of Ash One because Ash One is witty, Ash One is... Ashwan has a certain, you know, sardonic sense of humor, which he often puts out, which is one of the things that Martha loves about him. So, in fact, I would say that, you know, as this Ash 2 progression is happening from the chatbot to the voice to the fully embodied, there are more and more opportunities for Martha to find lacunae or absence or absences in Ash 2 that prevent them from being the old Ash 1. So, in fact, let, let me put it this way. By you asking me whether Ash 1 and Ash 2 are the same person, you're actually re-digging up this whole 
problem of personal identity, which is what right. makes one person the same as another person. And given that we don't have a clear answer to that as yet, I would say this, this question is insuperable at best. But I would say from two important standpoints, he's not the same person. There isn't a kind of a physical continuity because he's clearly made of different material. He's not made of the same flesh and blood. He doesn't have psychological continuity because there is a kind of aspect of him that is just missing in his interactions with Martha. It just hasn't been put out there. And I think something else that's really important and interesting because we're not just persons because of our psychology or because of our physical constitution. We are persons also because of the relationships that we have with all the other people out there. So if Ash too doesn't have the same relationship with Martha that he had before, then I think in a very important sense, he's not the same person. We are the sum totality of our physical constitution, our psychological makeup, and our relationships. And I think Ashtu is, I think, lacking in all of these in some way or the other. Okay, so let me ask you a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. So I suppose let me ask you two follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. One is, even if we say, okay, Ashtu is not the same person as Ash1, Mm -hmm. would you say that Ashtu is a person? In the philosophical, moral, maybe even political, you know, robust sense of a person. Mm-hmm. That would be my first question. Yeah. And the second question is, is the difference between Ash 1 and Ash 2 a difference in kind or a difference in degree between Samir today and Samir yesterday or Samir today and Samir when he was five years old? Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Sure, sure. Um, the first question, whether Ashtu is a person at, at all, I think depends upon whether, you know, we can think of Ash from the outside. I mean, you know, I, I'm not I'm not concerned with the, uh, you know, we're trying to, as it were, operate on Ash too and open him up and to find out whether he's internally like other persons. I think what matters for us as persons is whether we can enter into certain kinds of relationships with them. And I think most importantly, whether the interpretive resources we have for making sense of other entities that we regard as persons are available to us in the case of Ash too as well. So for example, I do think that unless and until we are biological chauvinists, and just going to deny personhood to Ash too because he is in fact not made of flesh and blood. But right. you know, on in, in all other regards, there is a way in which I can predict Ash too's behavior based on his beliefs and desires. For example, I'm going to say things like Ash too came into my room because he wanted to talk to me, or Ash too doesn't want this television playing anymore because he doesn't like this program. So I'm going to be describing him, you know, to use a traditional phrase from the philosophy of mind. I'm going to be taking the intentional stance with respect to Ash too. I'm going to ascribe him agency because his beliefs and his desires are going to be the causes of his actions. So in my opinion, he's an agent. In my opinion, he is also a person if the various interpretive resources we have for describing other entities as agents can also be used in the case of Ash 2. There is one problem with Ash 2, which I think is going to stick in people's craws when it comes to describing him as a person, which is I think there is a certain kind of epistemic familiarity that we have with Ash 2. We know that Ash 2 is a product. We know that Ash 2 was made in a factory. Martha even knows, you know, she stuck Ash to in a tank and she inflated him and all of this stuff, right? Now, I do think there is a sense in which 
when we as human beings know a great deal about the innards or the insides of these entities that we're dealing with, I think there's a kind of epistemic access that we have that makes us also take recourse to what people in the philosophy of mind call the physical stances or the design stances. Like I can explain Ashtu's behavior by saying things like, well, you know, the CS2 caring module kicked in when the NP module pertaining to this kicked in. And that's why he came to the room, not because he wanted to see Martha. Right. But if we knew enough about, I mean, it, it, it's conceivable that if we knew enough about the human mind, we could also say that about exactly, the human mind. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that when we lose that, to use a wonderful phrase that Dan Dennett gave us, when we lose that epistemic hegemony over Ashtu, any doubts we have about him being a person will go away because the best way to deal with Ashtu would be to treat Ashtu as a person right? In all the ways that we do to other persons. So for example, let's say uh, that we did not know how Ashtu was made. Let's say we were not allowed to operate on Ashtu and see what he was made of, just like we're not allowed to operate on other human beings and just, you know, <laughs> right. hey, I, I want to see why you said this thing. So I'm going to split open your head and see why you said this thing. No. So I think if we didn't know how Ash was made, if we didn't know what Ash's innards were, if all we had to go by were third person descriptions, then I would say we have very good reasons for regarding Ash as a person. So I think in dealing with entities that we consider persons, I think we're actually taking on a certain kind of interpretive stance. We are seeing whether the resources that we have for making sense of entities that we consider persons and the paradigmatic entities who we consider persons are other human beings, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we constantly talk about personhood in the abstract as being possibly extensible to animals and other beings. But remember that if we were gonna do that, the resources that we would have at our disposal would precisely be the ones that we have for dealing with other human beings, except for the fact that we would not have as much knowledge of their internal constitution as we do of other human beings. So for example, let's say that Martians came to earth, landed on our planet, parked their flying saucer in one of our many parking lots and came to us and said, take me to your leader. And the only way that we would have to make sense of these extraterrestrials would be to adopt this third person perspective and see if we can start describing them beliefs and desires to make sense of their actions. And then if they start behaving in ways that we would consider immoral, we would start to see if there was a pattern of ascription of moral beliefs and desires to them. We wouldn't go around saying to the Martians, look, the only way that we would consider you persons is if it turned out that you had this similar internal constitution to us, right? That, that would be- so so yeah. is that is that a view that you yourself ascribe to? So is it your view that absent some kind of reductive biological essentialism, that there's no reason to deny personhood to another being that phenomenally presents itself as a person? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Putnam wrote this paper back in 1964, uh, might have been in the Journal of Philosophy, it's called... Uh, Robots, minds, or yeah. artificial life. Yeah, yeah, that's a great piece. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and honestly, I, I, I think the fundamental debate is exactly still the same. Yeah, totally if, agree. If, <laughs> yeah. if you meet beings whose language maps onto mental predicates, color predicates, then absent you insisting on there being some substrata that is supposed right. to underwrite this, and then you lay yourself up to the very dangerous possibility that Martians could come and you know say, well. As far as we're concerned, you guys are made of flesh and blood, and that doesn't strike us as the right kind of material with which to, you know, 
Uh, it's a pretty uh, weak. It's a pretty weak case for respect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the fact that we happen to be made of flesh and blood, or that we have access to all these inner incommunicable experiences that we can't possibly tell you about, right? So I yeah, think, yeah, so, and that we have the habit of appealing to those as our idiosyncratic exceptionalist yeah, you know, element. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, think of the way historically our relationship to our outside environment has changed as our epistemic standing vis-a-vis it has changed. Back in the mm-hmm. old days, when we saw mountains and seas, we would say the angry sea crashes up against the shore. We ascribe the seas and the mountains all this intentionality when we didn't understand their physical structure. The moment we understood their physical structure, we got rid of these descriptions of intentionality. And now notice something interesting is happening with human beings. As we get neuroscientific knowledge about human beings, we find people in courts of law wanting to actually take away moral responsibility and agency and intentionality from human beings because now we have access to this alternative physical description of them, right? So there's almost a kind of, there's this arc that as we get to know more about ourselves, we are going to start removing intentionality and agency from ourselves because we've got this neuroscientific description of us, right? And as our machines become more complex and as we come to know less about them, we start granting them intentionality. (laughs) That's what I was just going to say. You know, there's a kind of parallel to this in the same way that we think that we're understanding the mechanistic operations of the human mind more yeah, we want yeah. to we you know we more and more want to say that you can't blame the agent for this yeah. whereas as we see phenomenally behaviors or activities on the parts of machines that look like agential behaviors mm-hmm. or activities but yeah. we can explain them i mean i'm thinking about you know just last year maybe a year and a half ago when the new poker playing AI came out and they're like, it's lying. It's bluffing. It's bluffing. Yeah. And really whatever it's doing is buried under so many layers of black box AI operations yeah. that we just simply don't understand what it's doing. But yeah. that of course could just be writ large the human mind. We just don't understand what it's doing. Yeah, Maybe it right. can be explained, but it does seem that we explain agential operations that we don't understand their sources as agential operation. We are very used in philosophy to drawing tight distinctions between metaphysical claims and epistemic claims. And I don't think actually those can be separated out of this case because we're trying to make a metaphysical distinction, but we have to keep in mind what our epistemic standing vis-a-vis that particular metaphysical distinction is. Anytime you say, I have picked out a certain kind of ability or a capacity or a certain kind of entity, we have to ask, under what kinds of epistemic conditions is that identification happening? And I think when if we are picking out AIs, if we are picking out persons, there's always this question of, first of all, I think under what context we are picking it out as a person. For example, why is somebody interested in knowing whether Ash2 is a person or not? I mean, that, that's a very good question. Are there things we do to persons that we want to do to Ash2? Or are there things that persons do for us that we want Ashtu to do for us that Ashtu is not doing. And notice in one very important sense, Ashtu's being a person fails in the most important test that he has to undergo, which is satisfying Martha's claims upon him, right? 
And those claims are not met. And ultimately, the failure that we see is because in this very tightly circumscribed emotional context, Ash 2 doesn't have the right kinds of responses. But Ash 2 could go out into other kinds of responses. He could be a bank teller. He could be, you know, you know, he could be a bank teller who learns through his interactions with his customers and becomes like really, really good at it. And everybody thinks this is the best bank teller of all time. Okay, but this actually gets back to the second question I asked you, which is, Mm -hmm. is the difference Ah. between Ash 1 and Ash 2 a difference in kind or just a difference in degree? And the example that you gave is a really good example because Martha is asking Ash 2 to be Ash 1, right? Mm -hmm. But had Ash 1 never died, had he just continued to live, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. We all know, because we're all in relationships with other human beings, that Mm -hmm. there are times when people who you know well and who you love act in ways that you think that's not how I thought you would have acted, right? And we don't say, therefore, you are not a person. So I want to ask again my second question. You said Ash 2 is a person, but Ash 1 and Ash 2 are not the same person. And you said not simply because of Leibnizian, you know, identity reasons, right? You can correct me if I'm imparting too much your answer here, but it seemed like what you were saying was they're not the same person because Ash 2, because he's an intelligent learning machine, Mm -hmm. is from the moment that he begins to exist, is becoming his own person. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so I guess my question is, what is the difference between Ash 1 and Ash 2 and Samir at five years old and Samir today? Great. Um, I think Ash 1 and Ash 2 are embedded in very different relationship contexts. I think that makes them into different people. For example, Ash 1 is dealing with the non-grieving Martha, while Ash 2 is dealing with the grieving Martha. Ash one is dealing with a Martha who's not trying to map him onto some older image. But, you know, with that caveat that you gave that people in long-term relationships tend to do this. I mean, I've been married 16 years and one of the discussions my wife and I constantly have is like, damn, you're different from the guy I got married to. Right. I mean, (laughs) and you know, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, in some ways, I think that's. The, I mean, it's true. Right? It's, it's absolutely true, and and and, yeah. and it, it is the challenge of long-term evolving relationships to keep on in a kind of a sympathetic dance to keep right. on aligning ourselves with the new personality that is emerging, and expecting sympathy and empathy for the fact that our personalities too are changing, and and very often people don't get it together, and then they divorce. Do you, do you think yeah. that? Do you think that we're we're inclined to? adapt in that way only because of what you earlier described as a kind of biological essentialism. It's like, I know that you're physically the same person. So even though you surprise me and I think this is a totally new man, and I'm not saying your wife says this about you, but like, you know, even, even if that were to happen, I have this kind of default prejudicial assumption that you're the same person. And so I'm going to adjust to it, whatever it is. There might be something buried low in my circuitry that makes me, you know, at some level regard this person as the same because biologically I can see the similarities. But I think from the standpoint of personal interactions, from the standpoint of personal relationships, what I'm really dealing with is this person's manifest presence and their particular interactions with me that are quite finely tuned to me particularly, right? I mean, I, I notice very, very sensitive, delicate interactions with me. And it's, it's my knowledge of those that causes me to continue to bank on them and also to hope that I can sustain them in particular ways, right? But, but I do agree with you 
that it is not a difference of kind. I think it's a difference of degree. You know, where Ash 1 and Ash 2 are differing, it's because there are certain kinds of performances that Ash 1 was capable of putting on that Ash 2 is not capable of putting on. And that's a difference not of kind, but a, but a difference of capacity, a difference of, of behavior, a difference of performance. Persons and non-persons are not different kinds in the universe. Yeah, yeah. I think persons and non-persons get picked out and demoted depending yeah. upon the web of relationships that they find themselves in. You know, back in the bad old days when we used to think of slaves as being non-persons and, and women and women and children, <laughs> you know, the treatment of humans as non-persons played a very strong role in, in my book when I was talking about personhood for AI, because I said, look, being human has never been considered necessary or sufficient for being a person. Right. You could be a person, right. you could be a human, not be considered. That's not sufficient, right? And I would say conversely on the other side as well, that being a person doesn't require us to be human or made of flesh and blood. It does, however, require us to be competent in certain ways. And I think those competencies are what we are looking for. Ash 1 has them to a high level. Ash 2 does not. To me, this difference is one of degree. It's, it's not really one of kind. I, I don't think there's a metaphysical difference between the two. I think there's an emotional difference, psychological difference, a moral difference, perhaps. But that moral difference doesn't rest upon their constitution. I, I don't think it's just because one is made of plastic and the other is made of flesh and blood. I mean, if a robot were to come and punch me today, it's not as if my injury would be any less because it had been caused by someone that wasn't flesh and blood, right? The, the injury is the same. So yeah, so to, that's a long-winded answer to your question. listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is, at present, ad-free. If you like what you hear, and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. That's patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. And now back to our conversation. So one of the things that I am secretly fascinated about, about your life is that you're a philosophical counselor. Uh (laughs) And and so this is a question that's entirely set up for you. So I teach this episode, uh, Be Right Back in My Classes, every semester. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed, interestingly, that every semester, the very first objection that my students raise mm-hmm. is about what they call Martha's unhealthy grieving process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say she's just hanging on to something. Their objection to the episode is that Martha is grieving in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. Now, I try to push back on this and I try mm-hmm. to say, obviously, everyone grieves in different ways. But nobody thinks that a healthy mode of grieving is just to, when someone dies, immediately forget them and move on with their life and never have anything to do with them again, right? And so what is different about what she's doing in these three sort of modes of technology, first the chat bot, then the voice-enabled chat bot, and then the Android, what is different between 
that way of using technologically mediated objects and what probably all of us do. I mean, you know, we all have photographs in our homes or in our wallets. I actually have a voicemail still on my phone from my grandmother who's passed. And if I were to go back 200 years and say to someone, look, this is what I do in the future. My grandmother died and look, I can still hear her voice or look, I still have her picture. Obviously people 200, 300 years ago would say that's sick. That's Mm -hmm, uh that's unhealthy. And so I'm wondering if you think that there's any merit to this argument that this is an unhealthy grieving process or whether, as I suspect, it's really just we're just not familiar with these technologies. They're just not parts of our lives. They're not parts of our grieving processes. And so we see them as pathological in some ways that we don't see voice recordings or video recordings or photographs as being. Yeah. Uh, You know, actually, your question has many dimensions to it. So I'm going to try and address all of them. One of my first reactions on watching this episode was, uh, as I think has been the reaction of many people watching the episode is, you know, the episode is about grief and it's about grieving. And so these kinds of responses are not surprising because I think that the very multiplicity of responses you will get to Martha are also the multiplicity of responses that people have to people grieving in general. For example, if you go to a funeral service, you go to a memorial service, you will see people consoling the bereaved in many different ways. Some of them will say things like, cherish his memory. Some people say, time to move on. Some people say, come, 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 stop crying, stop crying. No, no, come on, come on. You should really stop crying. Some people say, no, no, let it out, let it out, right? There's a, yeah, there's yeah. a, there's a tremendous diversity of ways in which we view grieving. And I would say that one way in which I perhaps agree with your students is that I think the episode shows how difficult it is for us to accept death, whether it's ours or that of others. Whether it's an unhealthy way to do it, I think is predicated upon the notion that we have a clearly formed idea of what it is to grieve in a healthy way. And I don't think we know what it is to really grieve in a healthy way because just because people's deaths are different and our relationships with the people who die are different. So I think we're going to find a multiplicity of grieving um, tactics and strategies and techniques and ways of doing it. And I would say that grieving really is one of those things where I hesitate to pass judgment on those who are grieving because it is such an intensely personal affair the way in which you grieve for someone is very often a function of the kind of role and presence that they had in your life. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether I could go ahead and condemn Martha right in the same way that, you know, someone might say they have an unhealthy attitude. The, the, The only generalized judgment I would make about Martha is that she's showing us how difficult grieving is. But, you know, now, now you think about it. We use letters, we use mementos, we use voice recordings, we use photos. The dead have now started leaving video recordings of themselves. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I kind of have a pretty abiding fantasy that my daughter will read my blog someday. In fact, I've started to console myself that even if not one single human being in the world reads my blog post, my daughter might, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, know, they're predicting that within the next 10 years, half of the people on Facebook will be dead people. Yeah. I mean, we're keeping our live digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. People now go on Facebook accounts to make death announcement for the person that has died. In fact, I'm really sad to say this. This happened three months ago to somebody I knew back in New York City. He Mm. was killed in a car accident and, Mm. uh, you know, his Facebook page was still up. And then one day his wife went on the Facebook page. She goes, hi, guys, it's me, so-and-so's wife. Just wanted to post this out here. And so all his friends 
who were his friends could then post at that particular post and say things and you know she left it up so in yeah. fact yeah. our social media account pages are becoming our graveyards they are becoming our virtual memorials mm-hmm. so to speak here's another example by the way there, there's a very large number of documentaries that are being made now that rely almost exclusively on publicly available material and i think a classic example is this american murder documentary which is on netflix which is about these multiple murders that took place in colorado every single yeah. second of that documentary is cell phone footage body cam footage social media postings or chats and an entire yeah. story has been told about the past using this material now that's what we do in history all the time right we use all these publicly available materials and i think in many ways martha is doing that she's got all these publicly available materials and the tools allow her to get this dynamic interactive history which is not just like you know for example somebody got told martha hey guess what your husband had a twitter account for the last 5 years that you didn't know about and here's his timeline you can read every single witty thing that he wrote and i can imagine someone sitting in front of the twitter account and saying you know that's really funny and i just wish i could hear it in that high pitched nasal voice of yeah. his <laughs> yeah 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 and somebody saying you know what G- give me that text and we have his voice samples and we will get the voice sample to play that sentence for you in his voice I think this is actually what's really brilliant about the coda to the episode where we see Martha and her daughter mm-hmm. and I'm real I'm really terrible about guessing children's ages but I'm going to yeah. guess she was like 10 or so 10, yeah and yeah so we know in the episode that when Martha gets the android ash 2 that this is a brand new technology and then in the coda to the episode judging by the age of her daughter this is like 10 years in advance and knowing what we know about the rapid development of emerging technologies i think it's reasonable to assume that 10 years in advance everybody's got a dead grandmother in the attic that they bring down for thanksgiving to like cook the meal the episode itself very clearly tries to draw a parallel between androids and photographs So so Martha and Ash one move into this house and Ash tells this story about tragically how his younger brother had died and that his mom took all the photographs of his younger brother and just stuffed him in the attic and then when mm-hmm. his father died his mom just stuffed him in the attic and then of course what we see later is that Martha ends up taking Ash too and just kind of stuffing him in the attic yeah, and yeah. so there is this <laughs> parallel that is meant to be drawn between Mm-hmm. you know t- technologically mediated artifacts that we have and this artifact that we don't yet have yeah um, yeah yeah i was just going to say something because you mentioned her child when i taught ai a year and a half ago one of the um things i had my class do was that i had them read asimov stories in irobot and the first story in that collection is about a young girl who plays with robby the robot and her mother doesn't like her playing with the robot and her father is asked to get rid of the robot he refuses and then they, you know so on and so forth and i think one of the most interesting discussions i had with my students when we were in the middle of discussing that sh- short story was how much of a difference it makes for people to grow up with the technology 
Yeah. So for yeah. example, when you're embedded in that context where you come down to dinner table to Thanksgiving and your mom has got little iPads at the table with, you know, this is our grand aunt who died last year and we've got her virtual presence here. And this is your cousin, sadly killed in a car accident three years ago, but we got his memory here. And they're kind of used to the idea that like people have virtual presences that outlive them after their physical presence is gone. And so whereas we are normally used to thinking of human beings as having pre-birth, post-death and life with this kind of physical vacuities and nothingnesses on both sides, or at least after death, we have like, you know, graveyards and tombstones and things like that. Well, maybe what we will have is pre-birth nothingness. Or we might have pre-birth genetic codes that are isolated. This is my kid that I'm going to give birth to in 10 years. And then you have the post-birth marking of the human, which is not just, you know, graveyards and tombstones, but also videos, phone calls, telepresences, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. And, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that people find this unhealthy way to think about death. Because if you think about the diversity and multiplicity of grieving techniques that we have, yeah, ranging yeah. all the way from tearing up photos to people maintaining shrines in their houses full. You know, I mean, the, one of the most tragic things is those parents who maintain shrines for their kids who have been killed. You know, they, they had their rooms still yeah. in the way that the man. Um, I have a friend. She goes to seances. She talks to mediums. She suffered a very tragic loss. And I do not for a second think that there is anything wrong with what she's doing. There's an emotional reality in her life that I'm not going to try and second guess and pass judgments on from the outside because I do think grieving is tremendously personal. I do think we might find in someone's particular grieving responses, if it is inducing pathological behavior on their part, you know, for example, let's say Martha had children, right? And Ash was her husband. And she was spending all her time talking to Ash too, obsessed with his absence, not taking mm. care of her kids. Then I might say that's an unhealthy process. But if her relationship with Ashtu is she goes to work and uses Ashtu for comfort during the day, you know, to get her through. I mean, what's the difference between that and like someone knocking off a three vodka martini at five o'clock in the evening? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I mean, like there is exactly zero difference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there isn't one. predict that the most interesting legal and moral and political and philosophical question in the next decade or so will be, can we be given the right to die? So, <laughs> so that our online lives can't be harvested and digitally embedded in an AI and recreated to live and live and live. Do I have to be immortal just because I was someone who was online in the latter half of the 20th century? And I think that there are a lot of people, and I might include myself among these people. I'm of the generation that sort of straddled the digital divides. Mm -hmm. I was born in the early 70s. So most of my adult life has been online, but I remember a time before being online. I'm, I'm like what they would call a heavy user. And it would uh, be very, yeah, yeah. you know, it would yeah, be yeah. very, very easy to recreate me from my digital presence oh, after sure. my physical body dies. You know, the question I think for people like me is, will I have any right to say no, you, no, you can't do that. That is one of the important differences between Lee one and Lee two. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Is that I, I still feel like 
Ash one ought to have rights about his person that supersede Ash two's rights to his person. But I think once Ash two is born, Ash two is a person and he has his own rights. Yeah, I think you know Ash two is being a person and having rights, and that 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 question coming up is going to become especially acute if Ash two has a much richer role in society than simply being Martha's companion. And yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, if, you know, if Ash two becomes, for example, uh, you know, if he becomes a an MP, an MP, at a, you know, <laughs> he becomes a town councillor, if he becomes a, you know, if he becomes right. a teacher. Right. I, I, I always say this whenever these debates about personhood, it's I always ask in which society is this debate taking mm. place? Yeah, yeah. Where is this entity embedded? Because that makes a huge difference to to our considering them persons. I think that's one of the great ambiguities of this episode is that it presents the entire story at the nascent point of this technology. And we don't get to see this technology in a world in which the technology is fully incorporated. But that actually leads me back to the question that I said I was going to ask you. (laughs) I was going to come back and ask you, which is that you described Ash 2 earlier as not having quite the same level of capabilities that Ash 1 had. And you described this in terms of relational capabilities, but I'd like you to say a little bit more of that because one of the things that I do think that a lot of people who watch this episode tend to say is that, well, Ash 2 is just a robot. He can only follow commands. And there are, of course, a couple of scenes in the episode where we see his you know, machine limitations. Yeah, sure. But I, but I think that people tend to ignore the many instances in the episode where we see him acting as an agent. Martha and Ash 2 get in a fight at one point and mm-hmm. Martha starts to hit him and basically egging him on to strike her back. She's like, hit mm-hmm. me, hit me. And he mm-hmm. says, I wouldn't do that. So he's clearly able to say no. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not just I'm not just following directions. Yep. And then, of course, there's this entirely curious scene on the cliff at the Mm -hmm. end where Martha says to Ash, you're not enough of him. You're just these kind of empty reflections of him and orders Ash to to jump off the cliff and Mm -hmm. to kill himself. And Ash too first responds in a kind of joking way. He's like, well, I've never expressed suicidal thoughts or self-harm. Like, why would I do this? this? Right. And she says, you know, no, do it. And he's like, well, if you're sure, okay. And she stops him and says, but that's not how Ash would respond. He would be afraid. And Ash too immediately becomes overwhelmed with this existential fear and begins to cry and says, no, I'm afraid to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to jump. And when I first watched this episode, I was watching with a friend and my friend said, oh, see, he's just pretending to be human. And I was like, no, he's an intelligent machine. He's learning. He in one second read being in time and Mm -hmm. learned, you know, existential fear, right? He learned being towards death in one second. And isn't that how we also learn? I mean, there was a point in my life where when I was a child, someone had to say, when this happens, you should be ashamed. When this happens, you should be afraid. When this happens, you should be happy. And you don't know until someone says that. So I want to ask you again, sorry, this was a long way around back to my question, but I want to ask you again about your characterization of Ash 2 as having less capabilities than Ash Oh, let me, let, let me qualify that. He okay. is, he fails an examination, which is conducted by a very exacting examiner, who is Martha, right? Okay. 
So I don't think Ash2 is limited in the sense that if someone says, look, what we have out here is a multi-purpose learning Android, which is super flexible, has all these capacities and can be flexibly configured into all. I think in that sense, he's a very capable machine. He's a very capable machine. He's smart. He learns. He just keeps on failing when it comes to Martha. Because Martha, I think, also is an exacting examiner in the sense that she wants different shifting things from Ash 2. And she's probably examining Ash 2 in ways that she doesn't even examine Ash 1. But is that Ash 2's failure or is that Martha's failure? I think it's a failure of the relationship. Of the relationship, right. I think it's the failure of the two together. Right. Because if my partner or if your wife insisted that you be the person that you were five years ago, at some point, I this wouldn't would be a pathological I would, like we wouldn't consider that our like my failure or your failure. That's a failed relationship. Right. Yeah. Like we've, yeah. 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 So I would say that the failures that he displays are failures within the context of a particular relationship. And yeah. because it's that relationship, we need to talk about Martha's role in this because Martha, frankly speaking, has not a very clear idea of what she wants out of Ash 2. She first is happy with a certain kind of presence. Then she finds that presence fragile because she drops the phone and she loses Ashtu. Then Ashtu tries to reassure her and says, you can get a different kind of physical presence. She wants that. She has sex with him, you know, which yeah. I found really interesting. And by the way, yeah. I feel like the whole sex with robots angle is a, you know, <laughs> I feel like it's one area which I, I, I feel like I want to have one whole episode talking about sex with robots because it, this is, you know, this comes up again and again. In Westworld, they had this. I tell my students when we talk about advanced robotics in my technology and philosophy class, I say, when we consider our future robot overlords, people basically have three questions. Will they kill us? Mm-hmm. Will they take my job? And mm-hmm. can I have sex with it? Sex with them. That's it. <laughs> yeah, right. And those are pretty much the concerns that we have about immigrants too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, g- given the way that given the way that our that our nation responds and aliens, to, and, yeah, aliens. and aliens, I mean, it's always yeah. the same thing. It's like, hey, yeah. the, there's a there's a new species of animal that we've discovered that's halfway between primates and humans. And we were like, wait, is that going to take my job? Can I have sex with them? Are they going to are they going to kill me? That's all we I, are ever concerned about. I but, mean, this is one good reason to welcome machine persons, right, is that they won't have the kind of humanist chauvinism that. That seems to be deeply embedded in us. Yeah. But okay, is it fair for me mm-hmm. to restate what you said earlier as Ash 2's capabilities as a person are identical to Ash 1's capabilities as a person, but Ash 2's capabilities as a partner to Martha yeah. are not identical yeah, to Ash exactly. 1's Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no. Those are the, they're very specific competencies in which he fails. It's like saying I have two persons They're equally capable, right? They're just capable in different areas. So Ash 2 is a very competent and capable person. It's just that he's not competent and capable enough to keep pace with Marsha's changing requirements of what she wants out of this. At one point, she wants a certain kind of fidelity. Later on, she starts to want that fidelity where she has certain memories of certain kinds of idiosyncratic responses that were entirely private to her, that were never put into his public persona which she's now indicting Ash to for failing to come up to. And by the way, when we talk about the, the pathological breakdown of relationships, that's exactly what people complain about. I've had friends who are divorced, right? And they'll say things to me like, my wife, my husband, when they came to the divorce hearings, I couldn't recognize them. 
I don't even know who I was dealing with. These are like complete strangers. In fact, I had one of my friends say to me in a very poignant way that the most painful thing about the divorce was not the seven years of conflict that preceded it. It was the feeling that he was dealing with a complete stranger as the divorce proceeded. Right? Yeah. So there's a sense in which even those small disorientations that we have with people can throw us off. And I think in Martha's case, to, you know, to bring in the epistemic angle at the back of her head is this kind of knowledge. This is a machine. This is a piece of software. I brought this from someone. So that old hangover is also not losing its grip on Martha. And that makes her treat Ash too in ways that I think are, frankly speaking, quite cruel at times. I mean, you know, when she's talking with him on the cliff, I was actually feeling some anger at Martha. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, yeah. it's like you want this yeah. guy to be one way, then you want him to be another way. There's, I mean, I mean, she forgets how honestly robotic Ash One was. Yeah, 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 I yeah. I mean, like you know, I mean, the the way that the episode presents Ash One to us is that he's always in his phone, he's detached, mm. he's aloof. Yeah, yeah. Know, because because he's always online, right? Yeah, because um, he's always online. And he's not paying attention. He's not engaged in the relationships that. Yeah, yeah. And there's this kind of, there's this kind of unsaid subtext that he might have been killed in the car crash because he was texting on the phone. Texting on his phone. Yeah. I mean, or you know, scrolling or doing something. So I think there is that angle to it as well. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. At the end of every episode, I ask my guests the same three questions. So I'm going to ask them to you and I'm going to just state them all in a row and you can answer them all in a row. Okay? Sure, sure, sure. So question one is, what do you think the lesson or the takeaway of this episode Black Mirror is? Mm-hmm. Second question is, what worries or concerns or maybe even scares you the most about the issues brought up in this episode? Be right back. And the third is on a scale of one to 10 with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a kind of utopia. Where does the world of Be Right Back fall? So I would say there are two lessons from this. One is that this episode forces us or makes us revisit our notions of grieving and loss and mourning. And I think it forces us to pay attention to the ways in which our grieving interacts with the materiality of the world around us. Living in different kinds of worlds, we will express our grief in different kinds of ways. We should expect that as technology changes and as the materiality of the world changes, our ways and means of grieving will change. Secondly, I think it forces us to pay attention to the way in which we construct the notion of personality and personhood and the ways in which our notions of personhood are very much interpretive. And I think it forces, and I think, you know, and, and I thank you very much, actually, Lee, for forcing attention to the way that Ash 2 is very much like one, all the ways in which he's like Ash 1, because I think it's all too easy to get hung up on the ways in which he's different. 
And I think what's more scary, or and, I, and, I, and I'll get to that in a second, is the ways in which he's very much similar to Ash One. And I think the earlier part of the conversation allowed us to revisit that and to reiterate what I think is a very important claim for me, that personhood is not a matter of discovery. It's a matter of decision. We don't discover a metaphysical kind in the universe. We make a decision to ascribe somebody or something personhood. And personhood is not a physical thing. Personhood is not a psychological state of affairs. It is a relational state of affairs. That's one of the big lessons. I would say in terms of this being scary from one to 10, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on the fence and give it a five because I do think the particular technology, it has, you know, it has tremendous amounts of potential in making us examine our notions of human shamanism, making us lose our sense of uniqueness, introducing certain kinds of functionality into the world that might be useful for us in not just these kinds of instrumental ways. If I'm going to change that five to a six and make it more dystopic or make it more seven, I think because this technology, unfortunately, is being developed in a society which is fundamentally unequal and which is fundamentally driven by more and considerations that are going to take any technology and make it scary. So, for example, I think, you know, when we talk about AI being a problematic technology, yeah, AI is a problematic technology in societies that are racist, that are inherently fundamentally unequal in these, pardon my language, in these fucked up societies, our technologies will have these tremendously pathological ramifications. So my first thing when I saw this episode, and as has been the case with Android shows right from Westworld, I always think of slavery right off the bat. It's like, if we can start making human beings like this, well, sex slaves, right? I mean, our civilization is basically trafficking thousands of underage girls every year. So what's to prevent us from making all these sexually fantasized, pedophilic fantasies and then instantiating them in robots? We have been, we still have slavery in the human world where people are working as, you know, forms of feudal labor and bonded serf labor in so many parts of the world. So, I mean, in in this kind of world, for these kinds of technologies to be introduced in places where we have commodified relations to the extent that we have, where, you know, for lack of a better word, the profit motive tends to be the central underwriting principle for many forms of social organization. I think in that kind of situation, I am scared of this kind Mm -hmm. of technology. You know, with with this kind of technology, I suspect the profit motives are not going to be in coming up with companions and caregivers for the old and the disabled. I think it's going to be coming up with rich, decked out sexual slaves for those who can afford it. I think it's going to come up with slave labor for people who can afford it. Amazon's warehouses, which are run by underpaid human workers, will then be run by robots who won't have to be paid. There's that dimension of exploitation in this that I cannot tear myself away from just because I know the society in which this technology is being produced. That's my problem. But I also hear in what you're saying that the problem with the emergence of intelligent machines or humanoid intelligent machines is not with humanoid intelligent machines. It's with the society in which they are emerging. It's the society in which they are being produced, designed, created. And and that society is the one that is in charge of dreaming up uses and applications for them. Yeah. We're a civilization that finds it, you know, completely non-problematic to kill thousands of its young people every year by sending them off to fight in wars. It's sort of a minor point in this episode, but I thought about it before our chat today. 
which is that uh, there's this moment where Ash One is at the very beginning, the radio comes on and it's disco music. And Martha mm-hmm. is like, oh, you don't like disco. And he's like, no, but I like the Bee Gees. I like mm-hmm. this song. How deep is your love? And then, right. of course, later in the episode, the same song comes on and Ash Two says, Oh, this is cheesy. This is cheesy, right? And it made me think about the ways in which if someone only scraped the kind of digital version of me, what are the idiosyncratic matters of of taste that they would miss about me? And Samir, as someone who I've only known digitally so far, I'm so glad to actually like finally meet you in person. Like this has been such a great conversation and we have to do this again. Yes, yes, we must. We must. I've always considered that there's a lot that we can learn about AI by looking at products of popular culture because they, you know, they very often contain our deepest hopes, fears, imaginings. And I think, you know, honestly, I feel I've learned more from popular culture in this regard than I have from formal philosophical theory at times. These these fears are very old ones. So yeah. it's, it's not surprising that we find them here as well. Yeah. Well, well thank, thank you, you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks very this- much. Thank yeah. you. You you know, I, I, I felt like you set up the podcast really nicely in terms of the starting questions, the wrap ups. And thank you very much. Those are all great questions. I really enjoyed talking about the show in that way. So thanks very much. Well, you know, that's that's why they pay me the big bucks. You know how it is. That's right. <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts.